0: Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness.
1: slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's help, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash sacred text.
0: Oh, I will, said Harry, and they were surprised at the grin that was spreading over his face. They don't know we're not allowed to use magic at home. I'm going to have a lot of fun with Dudley this summer. I'm Reckless Disregard for Safety Measures at Hogwarts Castle.
1: And I am one of Molly's delicious homemade Christmas sweaters.
0: And we just finished reading book one on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
1: So, Matt, we did it. We've read 17 chapters of Harry Potter. You've given us 17 etymologies of theme words. How do you feel?
0: It feels great. It feels great. In my normal everyday life, I don't get the chance to elaborate upon linguistic history with the people around me.
1: I find that shocking. So, Matt, your impressions of the book. I know that this is one of your favorite Harry Potter books. How are you feeling about it now?
0: I have to be honest. I'm not sure that it is my favorite Harry Potter book anymore. I think the reason I counted it as my favorite before we started was because it has a standalone quality. It doesn't depend upon the other books and you can read it on its own. And although that's still the case, I also saw reading through this time how much it forecasts and anticipates things that are in the other books. But that's not actually the main reason why I'm not sure it's my favorite anymore. The central reason is because I really admire this lesson of, of love. I really like that the kind of moral at the end of the story, at least in my memory, was so clear about the idea of choosing love and depending upon love as the source of one's protection and power. But as we spoke about in last week's episode, this time reading through, I started to wonder about what the characteristics of that power were. And now I'm thinking that, oh, maybe the forms of love that emerged later in the series are actually the forms of love that I admire more than just kind of a magic love that not only protects you from pain, but can inflict pain on others as it does to quarrel in the end of this book, right? Whereas later on in the series, you know, love takes the form of community and solidarity and people joining together and sometimes making sacrifices, knowing sacrifices and not reckless ones. I still like this book a lot. I still like the clarity of its moral, but that moral became a little bit less clear for me as I was reading through this time. And I think that's a good thing. That's why we're doing this. What about you, Vanessa? What impressions did you have?
1: I mean, this time, right, obviously COVID was really on my mind. And I think that something that you and I came back to again and again was the danger of kids being in school. And I cannot imagine that those two things are unrelated. School's a dangerous place has long been a truth in the United States. Right now, it's just there's like nowhere safe. And I think I did always think of Hogwarts as a safe place and the Gryffindor common room, especially as this really safe place. And you and I just kept coming back to this idea that there are dangers allowed in this castle that we really don't think should be allowed there. I think the thing that I pulled away this time was just the culpability of quote unquote good adults and the pressure that is on young people. I feel that right now about climate change, that it feels like all of this pressure is on Gen Z to, like, fix it. And I feel like that in this book, right? Like, Flitwick and McGonagall and Snape, they all think that they have made the castle as safe as they can, but it's up to these three kids to actually make the castle safe. Well, Matt, we now get to recap not just one chapter, but the whole book in 30 seconds.
0: This seems such an insurmountable task that I'm not even anxious about covering everything. So I'm just going to start talking. And then we'll see what happens.
1: Okay, Matt, on your mark, get set, go.
0: Okay, Harry's a baby, and he gets dropped off, and then he grows up, and he's very unhappy because the Dursleys are mean. And then a letter comes, and he's going to wizard school, and Hagrid shows up and steals him away, and then they go and get him a bunch of supplies, and then he figures out that Draco's a jerk. And then they go to Hogwarts, and Hogwarts is amazing, but also he's a celebrity, and it's kind of difficult for him. And then they figure out uh, Snape is mean to him, and maybe there are evil things lurking in the in the bowels of the castle. And there are evil things lurking, and they, they go down to try to save the world from Voldemort, and they do. <laughs> well i feel like i skipped a lot of stuff at the end but it was okay i I actually had two i had like two seconds to go but i thought you know rather than trying to dive back in i would like to just relax with these two seconds just take these two seconds back and exhale so vanessa it's your turn to do 30 seconds maybe you can pick up some of the things that i missed toward the end of the book
1: probably not but okay i'll try
0: on your mark get set go
1: so I am the daughter of dentists, and I am just like a pretty happy kid, but then it turns out that I'm actually a witch, and I get to go to school, and I get to learn about a whole different world, and I'm really good at it, and I read all of my books ahead of time, and then I go to school, and it turns out that some of the boys are mean, and they make me cry, and then we all kill a troll together, and then I learn that it's okay to break rules sometimes, and in fact, I become pretty proactive in breaking of rules. I help escape a dragon across international borders, and then I um, help kill this evil teacher who I always thought I'd admire teachers, but then I get an extra 50 points.
0: That was excellent. I can't believe that you do not have notes with you because that was you did that in the first person as a character in a way that not only captured many of the plot events in the novel, but also captured the perspective of that character. It's truly impressive. Seriously, that was that was excellent.
1: Thank you. So, Matt, something that we sometimes lose track of on this podcast is the character of Harry, because so many things are going on around him. And I was wondering what your impression is, sort of, of Harry's arc throughout this book. How would you describe what he goes through?
0: Upon reflection, thinking about this first book, to me, the arc is about Harry, you know, losing and regaining a family. I mean, thinking about that is probably what governed the way I told my 30 second recap actually right because the book begins with him having lost his family and being placed into an adopted family family only in the sort of formal definition it doesn't actually provide him support or comfort or love in any way as we know and it seems to me like the major events at least with respect to harry throughout the novel are versions of him getting a little bit closer to that family right so like he realizes he's a wizard and goes to hogwarts and that's better. But then he's a celebrity there, and also some of the teachers are mean to him, or one of the teachers is mean to him, and some of the students are mean to him. And he sometimes doesn't feel at home because he is singled out as the, the special one, either for good or for ill. That doesn't feel like a family, right? And then he sees himself in the mirror of said, and he actually sees his family, and he begins to feel like he has some roots, some of the roots that he's been looking for his whole life. But then Dumbledore reveals that that's not a real family either, Right. Uh, And it's only kind of going through the harrowing experience through the trapdoor with Hermione and Ron that he finds some folks he can really count on. He finds a community around him that feels like the community that's going to hold him up, that feels like the sort of thing that he's been missing in family his whole life. And that's why when the book ends and he's going back to the Dursleys, he's not worried because he has a family now. But you read the book this way, it's really bookended by these two deliveries to the Dursleys, right? The first chapter is him being dropped off and him having no one. And at the end of the book, he's being dropped off with the Dursleys again. But this time, he feels like he has his people. He's found his people. And so, like, that journey is the journey, it seems to me, that Harry goes on through the course of the book. What about you? What arc did you see for Harry in the book?
1: I mean, the thing that I was really struck by this time, Matt, was also this Mirror of said moment And when Harry says it is the first time that he saw his family, a photograph, anything of his parents. And I'm just thinking like when Hermione hugs him at the end of the book, that might be the first hug he's gotten that he can remember. He gets his first real present that he can remember from Molly. He gets his first like not being punished by an adult, right? When McGonagall pulls him aside and actually rewards precocious behavior instead of punishing it. And I think that part of me is interested in the fact that later in the books, we're going to find out the extent to which he had all of that as a young baby. He just can't remember it. You know, we know that Sirius sent him a toy broom and, you know, that obviously Lily and James loved him so much. But I think of coming to Hogwarts, not only as his first family, but like his first fun, his first joy, Right. Yeah, And yeah, I, I think that that is part of the magic of this book is like watching this kid appreciate the world through fresh eyes.
0: Yeah, Vanessa, I think that all makes sense. I'm also curious just how about other characters? I mean, one of the things I'm coming to realize more and more as I read is like how much the novels are working to try to take away from Harry this kind of special one status and disperse responsibility and leadership and courage and virtue among a wide group of students, right? So it also makes me want to ask the question about, like, other character arcs. How are other people growing up? Mostly the the children at the school, but maybe other characters as well. Like, what other sort of developments do you see or did you find interesting in your read this time?
1: I think that because this is the first time I've allowed myself to bless the, you know, not women, I was able to track Ron in a different way that I really enjoyed. He has like the opposite of the Harry experience, right? He knows his whole life that he's going to end up at Hogwarts. He arrives and he's so not famous that he's just another Weasley kid. It's, ah, another Weasley. He is a mediocre student. He's just like very under the radar. And I think that he is someone who's still like trying to be a good kid And I think what I love about Ron is that if you really track him, you realize how hard it is to be a good kid, right? Like he tries and he messes up all the time. And that's one of my favorite representations in art is when it is about good people trying to be good and just like how hard that is. What about you? Who did you like paying attention to?
0: One person I think I attended to in a different way and that I want to keep paying attention to is Hagrid. A lot of the adult characters in the novels, I think, are relatively flat. McGonagall's great, but plays a particular role in these novels. And even Dumbledore is great, but plays a particular role in these novels. We don't get a lot of interior sort of reflection from them. But I think the exception among the adults, maybe, is Hagrid, who, right, who really grows over the course of these novels and who we feel like we get to know more intimately, maybe because the children also get to know him more intimately. I started to recognize just how difficult his childhood must have been just how much of an outsider he remains at the school he loves and just how good and giving he is in spite of all these things, but also how flawed he is. Like he makes serious mistakes in this novel and will continue making these mistakes. But again, in a way that we can see him growing and changing and we can be with him as a character in the ways that we're not allowed to maybe or or invited to with other adult characters in these novels. Hagrid just really opened up as a really rich and interesting character for me. And he's one I want to keep paying attention to throughout the remainder of the series?
1: Yeah, I think only in conversation with you have I realized how lonely he is until Harry comes, right? Like Charlie's been graduated for a little while and like that's maybe the last kid that we think that Hagrid was close to. And Hagrid is just evidence of the fact that when someone is isolated, disenfranchised and alone, they are more at risk, right? Like he gets Mm -hmm. taken advantage of because there's no one for him to talk to about the fact that it's weird that this dragon egg suddenly appeared, and he's willing to do something pretty drastic in order to have company. And mm-hmm. I think that he is proof of how someone totally innocent, right, can just be put on the margins and sort of left and forgotten there. Yep. So, Matt, this is a little bit transitioning to our long view, or as we have said in previous iterations of the podcast, the long view just so you know. But in addition to these other characters of Hagrid, Harry and Ron, someone who I do want to take the long view on is Neville. And this is also looking forward throughout the books. I really don't understand why he isn't part of the trio. He is there from their very first adventure. He is part of what gets them the points that allows them to cross the finish line is the Gryffindor, you know, Victors they build up his confidence similarly to how they build up Hermione's confidence. What is it about Neville and their dynamic that keeps him on the outside?
0: I that's a good question. I mean, for like character building purposes and throughout the books, Neville is this outsider character that it doesn't he doesn't remain an outsider if he gets brought into this trio, right? Neville becomes really interesting to me later on in the series as a possible alternative object of the prophecy, right? That he's always been not the chosen one. And the fact that he wasn't chosen is what makes him not the chosen one, right? And I think that if we had more and better character development of Neville in these novels, the novels might pick apart this idea of the anointed one or the chosen one more successfully, right? If we could see more of how arbitrary Voldemort's choice was to decide that Harry was it and not Neville if we could learn more about what other signs there may have been in the stars or in the world pointing towards Neville as the actual object of prophecy instead of Harry, that might be really interesting. And I think that we might know that stuff if he was one of the characters that got a lot of attention, one of the kind of insider group. But as it stands, like I said, I think that he kind of plays the role of the outsider in the books, and and so Rowling keeps him there.
1: Can you explain to me the like benefit of the role of the outsider. Like, what is that characterization in literature?
0: I mean, I think it it has a sentimental quality, right? Like, I mean, Neville's 10 points at the end mean more because he is the one that's been characterized as the bumbling person who couldn't do anything right the whole book, right? And he does the one thing right, which is only worth 10 points, but standing up to your friends is sometimes as hard as standing up to your enemies, whatever, right? And so that it's, it because it's a sentimental kind of value, right? And I think later on in the books as well, when Neville does something heroic, it's not just a heroic character doing something heroic. It's the underdog doing something heroic. And that that has a special sentimental quality, right? And we only get that if he remains the underdog throughout the books. And so Rowling has some motivation in keeping him an underdog throughout. That's about Rowling's motivation. I think at, your question is like, why don't Harry, Ron, and Hermione bring him in? Yeah. Why don't they, they don't have any motivation to keep him the underdog. And I, I don't know the answer to that question. And I, I want to treat this as a sacred text and ask it internal to the text, not attributing it to Rowling. So let me spin it back to you. Like, <laughs> why do you think, like, is there something in them or is there something you can discern in, in how Neville is or how these three are that keeps him from kind of being pulled more fully into their friendship?
1: I, You know, the only thing I can think is that perceived weakness can be really scary to be around. One of my favorite lines in Jane Eyre is friends forget those whom fortune forsakes. And I I do think there's something about that, that especially for 11-year-olds, that, right, we meet him and like his frog is missing. Like there's just something... A little pathetic about Neville, that I think we don't want to be around people who we perceive that way, because on some superstitious level we think it's contagious.
0: Well, maybe I mean that's a pessimistic reading of like why we might avoid those friendships, but also because friendships are supposed to be mutual. You don't want to be taking care Mm -hmm. of someone all the time. You want to be taken care of as well, right? And if if Neville seems like a person that can't take care of you, or for whom you feel like you would often be in the role of like caretaker or corrector or teacher or cheerleader or all those things. That's something friends always are for each other and ought to be, but you also want that from your friends as well. And so it, it may not be as cynical as just like the stink of weakness makes me want to avoid this person. It might just be like a habit develops or a pattern develops of it's all going one direction. And so I'm looking to other people to get my cheerleading and teaching and comfort because Neville seems less capable of doing that. But again... is he less capable of doing that? I, he's I don't not. know. It's a, he's not things right. things
1: are misreading.
0: Exactly, because he loses his frog, but that doesn't do anything. He stands right up with Ron to fight Crab and Goyle, right? Like he is, he is right there for everybody. So there is a misreading there, and and my less cynical view is not really borne out by the text. Like I think that yours might be borne out by the text because he does things like stand up with Ron, and yet he's still an outsider. Yeah, I don't
1: know. I just it makes me. Sad at the trio, it's just such a missed opportunity for them,
0: yeah, I think that's right and and to go back to my comments before, I feel like if Neville had ended up as one of this group of four, when Harry learned about the prophecy, that might really have changed things for Harry, like his approach to what was coming and what he learned he thought he had to do or whatever, it might have really transformed things for him to have. This one other person who might be able to relate or who might be able to listen or who might be able to, like, take his hand and actually offer support in that sense and be like, we can do this together, man, because the prophecy might be about both of us or either of us or neither of us. But either way, we got to do it together. Like, were Neville part of that trio? Well, this this quartet later on in the books that could have really been a support for for Harry. And I think that just the comparison, their family backgrounds, I just think that he could have learned a lot from Neville. Yeah. In relationship to parents, in relationship to Voldemort, in relationship to the Death Eaters and this fight that was coming, um, it it could have been a real resource for him, especially later on in the series. You know, this makes me want to turn to one of the things that that I want to think about uh, on the long view. I want to think more about Dumbledore. Dumbledore is a character who appeals to me for the same reason that this first book appeals to me, that I have this sense that Dumbledore, as kind of misplaced as his intentions are, Sometimes I think that he does actually believe that love is more powerful than hate, and that he's trying to build a response to Voldemort that begins from that belief. So that makes me like him. But as you know, and as our listeners know, he does a lot of stuff (laughs) wrong in these books. And all this stuff about Neville and the prophecy just has me thinking, like, you know, why does Dumbledore not say more? Why does he not tell Harry more? I know Harry's only 11, but, you know, one thing I've learned as a parent is kids know more than you tell them and so you may as well tell them what you know because they are less scared if you're talking to them about the stuff you're not sure of rather than them trying to figure it out on their own and I I just wonder why he doesn't say more and I want to really pay more attention in the books to what I think Dumbledore knows at the time that he's making these decisions and try to pay attention to why he's making the decisions he's making and just to kind of track his guardedness and his his secrecy and his reluctance to share Harry's story with Harry. I mean, it seems like those are the things that Harry deserves to know. And even though I'm sympathetic to all Dumbledore's sort of belief in love as the the saving power of the books, I also think transparency and honesty are powerful, powerful forces as well. And it, he seems to be afraid of those things or feel like they'll make Harry and others weaker. When I just don't think that's right. I
1: think your reading of him is exactly right. Amy, our nine-year-old, and I just reread book five together. And after Sirius dies when Dumbledore pulls Harry aside, he essentially says, look, I forgot what it's like to be young. And the reason I didn't share stuff with you is because I came to love you and I wanted to protect you. And the first time, you know, he alludes to this conversation that we see in book one. He's like, I just looked at you and I was like, you're 11. You deserve to be carefree for another year. And so I think you're right that he on some level thinks of love as a weakness, that he is like, I loved you and that made me weak and therefore unable to tell you these things. I think that that's such an interesting thing that we can track as we read these books, that you can simultaneously know that love's the strongest thing and believe that when you love something, it makes you weak, right? Like, especially with him, you know, with his trauma around Grindelwald and his sister, like, this could have been a sort of hard-earned lesson or, like, a wound that didn't heal right, you know?
0: Yeah, but see, this is what takes me to, like, this other kind of question I have about the long view and the reason why I'm becoming less convinced that this first novel is my favorite of the series is because, you know, the phrase you used is that Dumbledore worries that maybe love is weak, right? Yeah. And I think that's the problem because love is not magic, right? Love doesn't fix everything magically. Love is what we have when things go wrong, but it doesn't keep everything from going wrong, right? And I think that in that moment when he's loving Harry and deciding you deserve to be carefree, For a year, he does deserve to be carefree for a year, just like every other eleven-year-old. But that doesn't mean he gets it. And so, what he needs, what he needs in this tragic world that has robbed him of carefreeness, is for someone to love him, which involves telling the truth about who he is. Yeah. Right. Like, you know what I mean? So, like, love isn't the thing that can fix it or that can magically make a broken world disappear. It's just the best thing we have to deal with a broken world as it is. But that means describing the broken world. As it is. And and that's, and that's again, that's the ambivalence that I'm having with the end of this novel, because love becomes this protection, this magical protection of Harry that keeps him from getting hurt and also hurts Coral, who I read is another victim, right? And so, like, the protective power of love just kind of passes the buck of pain onto another victim rather than just saying, oh, no, here's a broken world where people are suffering. How do we support one another, even where where and when we can't magically fix what's gone wrong?
1: And I think you see that, Matt, right? Dumbledore says to Harry, I shall answer your questions unless I have a very good reason not to. And the first question Harry asks is about the prophecy, right? He says, Voldemort said that he only killed my mother because she tried to stop him from killing me. But why would he want to kill me in the first place? And Dumbledore says, alas, the first thing you ask me, I cannot tell you. Not now. And I think that this is the exact moment where he makes a wrong choice, where he thinks Yep. It is the loving thing to hide this from you. And yep. yeah, this is the mistake. He's in a difficult position, right? Like, whew.
0: He is. Like, I don't know if you tell an 11-year-old, yeah, this guy's coming for you. <laughs> you maybe have seven to nine years of life left. Like, I don't think you necessarily say that, right? Right. Especially in the aftermath of Harry just triumphing. Yeah, like, I think that he can be honest with Harry. You know, he says earlier in the chapter, you may have only delayed his return to power, Voldemort's return to power, but it will merely take someone else who is prepared to fight what seems to be a losing battle next time. And if he's delayed again and again and again, he may never return to power, right? I mean, I think that he can be honest with Harry about how powerful Voldemort is and the fact that maybe even the fact that Voldemort's coming for Harry while also saying, but you know what? You You fought him off. And there are lots of people who are willing to fight him off, just like you. And as you could see from yesterday's events or whatever, three days ago's events, all it will take maybe is people willing to do this for the people they love to stave off the outcome that Voldemort wants from the prophecies. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grim Place, so you need to find a new home. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
0: So let me suggest one other long view I want to take in the series, Vanessa, and this isn't actually about any characters or even any plot structure. We're reading this book as if it were a sacred text. And in my own tradition in Christianity, one of the things that bothers me about the way that The Bible is sometimes read in Christianity is that some Christians believe that in order to take the Bible seriously, you have to take it literally. And to me, that's actually taking it unseriously because that's not actually paying attention to how complicated the histories of these writings are, how the people writing them were playing with different genres, different understandings of time and biology and all these other things while writing, right? And that to take the Bible seriously, on my reading anyway, means that maybe sometimes you take it literally, but other times you have to really do the difficult work of figuring out what is the genre here? What's the form here? What is the tradition and custom of the forum at the time it was written? What might be being meant by all these things and not just assume that whatever it means at first glance in my contemporary eyes is actually the meaning I should glean from it, right? Taking it seriously means the hard work of getting past the literal to try to dig at the complications of genre and form and writing and all that messy stuff, right? And so i'm I'm wondering about this book you know we spend a lot of time talking about for example how abusive the the dursleys are and they absolutely are abusive but they're also cartoonish in their abuse at least in my reading again there are more of these flat adult characters who play a role right and so i wonder if there are ways that we can bring in maybe considerations of form in fantasy writing or in children's literature, the way adults are portrayed in children's literature or the way that violence is portrayed in certain kinds of fantasy writing or other kinds of fiction to help us think through what might be going on with some of these representations. One of the tricks with the series is that I think it starts out as a more kind of surreal Roald doll type fiction and then moves through the course of the series by the end to a more fantasy slash J.R. Our Tolkien-type fiction, right? But that just kind of emphasizes my point more, which is that, like, those two voices of fiction writing actually think about violence and use violence in really different ways. Like, roll doll violence, like the novel Matilda, where the principal throws children out of the windows by their hair, that's awful abuse, but it's also, like, Looney Tunes Saturday morning cartoons-type stuff, mm-hmm. right? Which is a different kind of deployment of violence as a literary trope than you know, the battles that are fought in Middle Earth, right? And so just paying attention to, like, how these things might be deployed, that's something I want to think about. What would it look like for us to pay attention to that? How would it affect our readings? Would it affect our readings? I'm not trying to, like, silence other readings, but just to kind of complicate the readings we have, yeah.
1: I think that our readings can actually be more interesting if we take genre into consideration, because there's something really grotesque about the idea of this this thing that's a laugh, right? Uh yeah. Dudley getting a pigtail mm-hmm. and then having to deal with the reality of surgery. Right. Like it's almost like the book is having it both ways in a good way. Is like isn't this funny and also there would be serious repercussions, yeah. right? And I I like that as a genre. I like the melding of the two of the the things that we wish for as kids, it is cathartic and fun yeah. to watch the bully get a pig's tail. Yeah. But also I'm just gonna tell you in one sentence that then the bully would have to get surgery, yeah, right. right? And like, we're not gonna focus on that. And in fact, the book is gonna end making fun of that bully again right. and being like, haha, I get to mess with him and actually exploit the fact that he got a pig's tail. Yeah. But there's just this like one drop in the bucket yeah. of like, just so you know, like there are real repercussions here. Yeah. And so I, I like the way that she plays with form. And it also makes sense to me that as the kids get older, they move away from like the Matilda understanding of the world to a more Middle Earth understanding of the world.
0: I mean, maybe what we're discovering is that like the books actually can't bear the Roald Dahl trope, that they kind of move inevitably towards the more realistic depiction of violence because, I mean, in Matilda, when the child gets thrown out of the window by her hair, she lands in the playground and pops up and walks back inside. Like, there are no consequences, right? right? But right. at the end of this book, like, there are consequences of violence. Voldemort is here. He's in the back of Coral's head, and he is trying to kill Harry. And Coral dies. Like, Coral dies a painful death. The weight of the story is too much for the roll doll type consequence-free violence to hold it up, right? Like, it can't bear the, that weight. And so maybe it moves kind of inevitably towards, towards that more... Realistic depiction of violence, which is makes me really excited to read book two because I want to see how Rowling moves away from the role doll stuff pretty quickly in book two. I think it gets to that different kind of genre or tone or or use of violence pretty quickly, except that the Dursleys seem like they stay there maybe until Dudley gets attacked by the Dementor. But that's something I can attend to as we move along in the books.
1: Yeah, I'm really interested in keeping a keen eye on the form and format of their abuse. Right, as they install a cat flap in the door and only feed Harry through the door yeah. and he gets two bathroom breaks a day, yeah. right? Like that's worse than solitary confinement, yeah. right? Like that seems to me to be exaggerated in a rolled all way. Yeah. And yet it describes in such realistic ways his pangs of hunger. Yeah. And so I, it's an interesting needle that she's trying to thread. So, Matt, for our final Floralegia, you and I have each picked a sentence that we think represents something essential about this whole book. So what sentence have you picked?
0: Uh, The sentence I picked is when Ron says to Harry, just before they go through the trapdoor, oh, come off it. You don't think we'd let you go alone.
1: It's such a good sentence.
0: Yeah, and I just love it because it fits into this kind of arc that I'm describing for Harry, right? Like, this is when... His new family becomes real. His found family becomes his found family when he realizes, oh, he's not alone, that actually these folks are going to show up for him, regardless of the risk attendant to showing up. What is your line that represents the whole book, Vanessa?
1: I picked Use It Well, which is the only thing that the note says from Dumbledore to Harry when given the invisibility cloak. And... I think it represents this thing that we were talking about with Dumbledore earlier, which is that, like, he doesn't give enough context. He doesn't say, like, these are the restrictions of it. By the way, it's from me, right? There's just, like, something cryptic about this. And yet there's a little bit of mischief in it, right? That it isn't, like, these are all the scary things about having an invisibility cloak. Just so you know, just because they can't see you doesn't mean that they can't hear you, right? There's something, like, very, like, fun and light about it. And... Like twinkly, right? Like Dumbledore is described as having a twinkle in his eye. And I think he's just like more twinkly in this book than he is in the later books, right? Like augment blubber tweet. He's silly in this book in a way that I really like. I love how well I think it sums up Dumbledore and Harry's relationship.
0: Okay. So we got to put them together, right? Yep. Oh, come off it. You don't think we'd let you go alone. Use it well.
1: I mean, I love it. It's like saying you have us. You have a family now. Use that well.
0: Yeah, I think that's right.
1: Don't just, like, leave us behind.
0: When you recognize that people are going to show up for you, then you also have to pay attention to, right, to to the fact that your decisions have bearing on others. If people are going to be there for you, the choices you make are going to impact them. And so that doesn't mean that you shouldn't count on them, but just realize that such unquestioning support means that you have to use it responsibly and, and use it well.
1: Yeah, and it can also be that they're, like, lending him something, yeah. right? Like, you don't think we'd let you go alone, take this thing, and use it well.
0: Well, it just makes me think about Ron down there, right? Like, in on the chessboard, where using it well means both being worried about what Ron's going to sacrifice, but also letting Ron do it, right? It's, like, both things. It's, yes. like, both—use it well means, like, know that this might be really dangerous for your best friend, your new best friend, but also— honor that it's his choice to accept that risks, that danger and use it well. Yeah. Okay. The reverse order. Use it. Well, Oh, come off it. You don't think we'd let you go alone.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. I love it that way. (laughs) Like Harry's trying to say goodbye. Like take the invisibility cloak and use it well. And Ron's like, shut up. (laughs) Keep the cloak. We're coming with you. Ugh. You're so dramatic. <laughs> That's what it made me think. What about you?
0: It's the same, right? It's almost like, stop being so serious, right? Like, yeah. in another children's novel, I'm reading to the kids. There's this quote from Marcus Aurelius where he says, stop spending all your time arguing over what makes a, a good person. Just be a good person. <laughs> right? And there's something about, like, I imagine the tone of Ron here being like, stop, Stop making dramatic pronouncements. Let's just go do what we got to do. Right. Let's get down to business. I like that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Vanessa, for this modified legia practice. I really enjoyed these spiritual practices this time, and I'm looking forward to continuing them with the future books and maybe even developing some new ones. We're going to finish our reflections on book one with some final blessings. Who would you like to bless?
1: You brought him up earlier and I had a similar instinct, which is Hagrid. I think he might have the right idea of love that you are talking about, Matt, right? He can't help but tell the kids things. He just, like, can't help it. He is vulnerable in front of them, sometimes to a fault, but, like, his default is to share. Mm -hmm. He just has such a big heart. He honors ritual, right? He's like, no, you get someone a birthday present on their birthday, He does hard truths on purpose, right? He's like, I think Voldemort is going to rise again. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's gone forever. His goodness just really shone through for me this time. The like alacrity with which he makes Harry feel safe. He's like, yeah, Ron should come too, down to Hagrid's hut, right? There's just something really genius about Hagrid.
0: I think you're right. Just like thinking about everything we've been talking about. I think that Hagrid knows that love isn't magic, but he still believes it's the most important thing, right? I just like Hagrid more and more the more I read. He's becoming more and more the hero of these books for me.
1: Me too. What about you, Matt? Who would you like to offer a blessing to?
0: I would like to offer a blessing to Quirrell. Because as we said in last week's episode, I really see him as a victim in many ways. And it doesn't mean he's entirely innocent, but I I think that he... He suffers a lot and dies uh, at the end of this book and dies mostly unlamented and unmourned, right? I mean, I know that that he was trying to kill Harry at times, so I'm not trying to vindicate that behavior, obviously. But I think there is something to be said for like, you know, you can acknowledge that Quirrell met his end because they were trying to save Harry and save the school, but you can also lament the fact that the only option you had was to destroy Quirrell, right? And that Quirrell was a cog in this machinery of evil that he got caught up in and kind of chewed up and spat out so I just I feel like I I want the novel or maybe I want its readers to just spend a moment wishing it might have been otherwise for Quirrell who I think can only be read as a really tragic character so my blessing is for Quirrell
1: I agree this week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place so you need to find a new home if you're like me Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods Go to
1: PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Matt, it's now time for us to honor members of our community who were lost due to COVID-19. Corey Westbrook, who is 67, a father, husband, spiritual leader, and friend, doctor Elsie Wayne Fan, who was ninety-three, a grandmother, a cancer researcher, and a sailor. Masoud Andrabi, who is eighty-one, a beloved husband, father, and grandfather. Katie Springs Cremeyer, who was fifty, a lifesaver therapist and remembered. Margaret Ann, who is 79 and will be missed by Norma and Mixie. And Marie Benson, who is 90, a lioness leader. May their memories be a blessing. So, Matt, we are going to take two weeks off and we are going to do a listener suggested theme. The theme is bravery, which was recommended to us by Naomi. Naomi, we're so grateful. So, book two, chapter one, Matt, you're going to tell us a story probably about that time I was really brave.
0: I have some children who fancy themselves very brave and some other children who relish in their own cowardice. And so, we'll see. We'll see what I can come up with. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook Common Room. Join our local groups and come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. You can also leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. And please send us a voicemail with a character blessing.
1: We are a Not Sorry production. We are edited and produced by AJ Yoramas. And our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Baizhou and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by ACAST. This week, we'd like to thank Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Emma Smith, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turcayle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. Thanks for coming with us through Book One, y'all.
0: See everyone in the Chamber of Secrets.
1: Matt, we did it. Neither of us killed each other.
0: I feel like this is the third week in a row when you have congratulated us for not killing each other, which A, is worrisome, and B, we are on Zoom, so that would be really, really difficult. right? I feel like this test cannot even be taken until we are in the same studio recording space.
1: That's fair. Okay, it's nothing to celebrate. You're right.
0: I, I celebrate that we finished the book. <laughs> the the <laughs> lack of murder is not a thing to celebrate. That's what I say.